I'll be reading from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Chad, so much for reading that. Uh, good morning, Redemption Church. Hope you guys are doing all right. Uh, so this morning, we are wrapping up the book of Titus. Uh, we began this about eight weeks ago, and um, we've been kind of walking through this book. Uh, Titus was a book written by Paul to a man named Titus. Uh, Titus was a Gentile convert of Paul's who became kind of one of his, his close disciples, um, and uh, after the church in Crete was planted by Paul, Paul left Titus there to kind of take care of it, to kind of oversee it. Um, and so, so that, that's kind of what you're reading. You're, you're reading kind of uh, this old discipler's advice and, and, and stuff that he's sharing with his younger discipler. Uh, he, this, this old mentor talking to his mentee. This old man of the faith talking to a young man of the faith, an old pastor talking to a young pastor, trying to share with them advice as to how to lead and run a church. That's what we've been walking through. This has been, a, I think, an incredible book to see really Paul's heart in a lot of these things. And, and there's really been two big themes that have come up through the course of this book. Um, and all of them have to do, bo- both of them have to do with how we ultimately respond to the gospel. How do we ultimately respond to the good news of what Jesus has done as it plays out in our life? And the first, and he talks about this in every single chapter, he says, if, if we really understand and get what the gospel is, what it means in our lives, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he rose again to conquer sin and death, he has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us, to teach us, to guide us, to sanctify us, he has promised to return. All of these things, if we truly get that, what it will produce in us is spiritual maturity. The people will grow in spiritual maturity. That looks like that we will submit to the authorities placed above us. That we will submit to the authority of Christ. That we will grow in joyfulness. We will grow in mercy. We will grow in grace. And ultimately, and what he leads to by the end of the book is that what this ultimately will produce is that we will grow in good works. Now I want you to hear me because we, we talk about this a lot that Works is not what saves us. I hope you hear that a lot here, that we are not saved by our good works. We're not saved. There's nothing that we do that makes us saved. It is what Jesus has done on our behalf. But coupled with that, and something that we probably don't say enough, so I hope you hear it this morning, is that although good works does not save us, good works does not bring about the gospel, the gospel should bring about good works. The gospel produces good works and his people. That, that is something that should necessarily follow. And if it doesn't follow, then we need to ask a hard question about what we really believe about the gospel. 
And that's kind of what, that, that's one of the big things he talks about. He talks about that regarding elders and the qualifications for elders, how as the gospel influences their life and as the gospel changes their life, this is what it should produce in elders and, and, and as well as anybody growing into maturity in Christ. This is what it should produce in families. That's what he looks at in chapter two. And then what does it look like as individuals living within the community and living within society? What should it look like? What should Christian maturity look like if the gospel truly takes hold in a person's life? And it should produce good works. Our lives should look different. It should do the good works of God that God has put us here to do. So that's the first theme running through the book of Titus. And the next, and it's pretty much every time he gives this kind of encouragement to people, lays out what is the gospel supposed to look like lived out in real life. He gives warnings. Saying there's also another way that we could respond to this. Either by outright rejecting it or even if we initially accept what Jesus has done on our behalf, if we, be, if we fail to take it seriously, if we fail to let it take root, there's another life that it produces, and that's a life of foolishness, of immaturity, of pride, of divisiveness. And it goes through the list over and over and over again. That there's pretty much two things that can happen. And depending on how seriously you hold the gospel, how, how much you care about what Jesus has done for your life, how we respond to that, how central that becomes to who you are as a person, it will change kind of the trajectory that you're on. And obviously what Paul is encouraging Titus and what Paul is encouraging the church is to let the gospel take root. Center yourself on the gospel so that it will produce spiritual maturity. It will produce Christian godliness. It will produce submission to authority. It will produce ultimately the good works of God. This is, his, this is kind of his, his last advice that he's given to this man who has walked through so many trials with him. Who's, he's, he's been left to kind of raise up this church in Crete, this baby church, and develop that and say, okay, now this is your time to take it to the next step. This is what he says. You need to let the gospel become central to your life and produce the things the gospel is supposed to produce in you and in the life of your people. He's built this argument throughout the whole book. And last week we read what I believe should have been the close of the book. Let me read it again and listen to it. This seems to be where Paul should have ended this book. Starting in verse four of chapter three. It says, when the, goodness of loving, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And just reading that, you can kind of see it coming to a close. Like this is, this is the pinnacle of what Paul is saying. That all of this, the gospel should lead people to live out good works. The good works that Josh was talking about the week before and Frank was talking about the week before. Justice seeking, mercy giving, the loving of one's neighbor, the caring for the needy, the, the addressing of idolatry in one another's lives so that we might live a full life in God. The good works of God's kingdom, that is what we are called to. That is what the gospel should produce in the life of the people. 
This is what Paul is pleading with Titus to do. He returns to it at the very end. And I think it's important for us to see this and why I'm spending so much time on this right now is because we need to see the context that the warning that we're going to be talking about happens. He comes back to it and he says in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul is leading us to believe that good works is what follows the gospel. That's this whole thing. That's what the book of Titus is. It says, when the gospel takes hold, it should ultimately lead his people to live out the good works of God. But we need to understand that he doesn't end it here. He doesn't stop here. And there's a reason. And it's so frustrating that he has to even say it. But there's a reason he doesn't stop there. And it's because he knows people. <laughs> I think he knows us. He knows me. He knows you. He knows our hearts. He knows what can happen over time. He knows how fickle we can oftentimes be, even in the face of such a great call. Because one of the big things we need to see is to Paul, the call to good works is not some timeless thing. It's not just something he throws out there and lets sit. The call to good works is urgent. We need to understand this, that Paul is not telling Titus, do good works tomorrow or do good works in some time in the future or plan on doing good works at some point in time. He's saying, do good works now. It is needed. It is urgent. There are people that need the church. Not tomorrow, not in the future, but now. Paul is pleading with Titus. He's pleading with his people. He's pleading with the church. He's pleading with us to remember that this is urgent. There's a sense of, of passion in what he's saying. This is not some, some just truth that he's putting out there. He's saying, guys, it is now. The, the world needs the gospel now. The world needs good works now. It is to address matters of urgent need. There's a sense of urgency in what Paul is saying. Ultimately, what Paul is saying and, and what, our, what I, I hope we walk away with is to don't waste time because there's work to do. That's how Paul closes this letter. He says, don't waste time. There is work to do. Because what we're going to read from 9 through 11 and where we're going to spend a good chunk of our time is actually a really fairly strong warning. It's a really kind of almost an impatient exhortation that he gives to the church. And it might seem really harsh. It might seem a little convicting. It might seem hard to hear. But you need to hear it in the context of the urgency of the good news of God. Because that's how Paul is saying it. He's frustrated, I think, that he even has to bring this up. You know, I, 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 I get this frustration that he feels. I, I experience it on a regular basis. And that's because I have little kids that I try to get out the door to go places. Um, like in my mind, I know I have to be there at a certain time. Lauren and I know, let's say it's three o'clock. We have some place to be at three o'clock. It takes 15 minutes to get there. So we need to be in the car, ready to go at 2.45. So I work back. So pretty much if we need to be somewhere at three, we start at one. Okay, like that's the sad reality of my life right now. 
we start at 1 p.m. planning. We do everything we can. We pack up half of our house. We put it in our car to go to the grocery store. Okay, that's our life. Um, so we're doing this and we're warning the kids. We're talking to them. We're, we're prepping them. We say everything. We're like, okay, we're leaving at this time. We're doing this. We could be going to Disneyland. It doesn't matter. This is what happens when the time comes to leave. We're like, all right, kids, let's go. All the shoes that at one point in time were covering our house are gone. They're just gone. I don't know where any of the shoes are. I still don't know where they are. They're just gone. If you can find a shoe, that's all you find is a shoe. The shoes are missing. None of the kids can find their shoes. And these toys that they've been ignoring all day while they're running around, literally bashing their heads into walls and laughing about it. That's what my kids are doing most of the day. All of these toys that they've been ignoring up until this point become so fascinating. They must play with it right now. And we're looking at them. We're like, we have been prepping you. We started two hours ago telling you that we were going somewhere. We've done everything we can. What are you doing? What are you doing? You don't need to be looking for your shoes. We found them two hours ago. I don't know where they went. You don't need to be playing with those toys. We have to go somewhere. Like I said, it doesn't matter. We could be going to Disneyland. We could be going to my, my parents' house where they can swim. We could be going anyways. It doesn't matter. This is what happens when we leave. And it's so frustrating. I'm sure you guys have felt this probably this morning, trying to get the kids here to church. I think this is the same frustration that Paul feels with, with uh, the church that Titus is leading. I think this is the same frustration. He has prepped us. He has told us, this is where we're going. This is where we're heading. This is the goal. This is what we're doing. This is what we're all about. And he gets to this point and he's looking around and he says, what are we doing? We don't have time to be looking for our shoes right now. We don't have time to be playing with toys right now. We don't have time to be doing any of this stuff. There is some place we need to be and it needs to happen now. This is the sense that I get as I read these verses. So I think we need to feel his frustration a little bit. So let's look at what, is it, what it is that Paul finds to be such a waste of the church's time. You start by saying, the first thing that he says is, don't waste time with foolishness and divisive arguments. Don't waste time with foolishness and divisive arguments. Let me read, starting in verse 9. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's important to note that this last section, unprofitable and worthless, is a direct parallel and opposite of what the verse says before. Whereas he says, devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Then he lists off these things and says, to be opposite of these things, these are unprofitable and worthless. Paul has no value in these things. We need to see this. God has no value in this stuff. And so I want us to talk about this. I want us to have a frank conversation of what these things can look like in our lives and the life of a church. So I think it's important that we know so that we can avoid them. Let's look first at controversies. He says, avoid foolish controversies. We are living in a world where everything, everything can be a controversy. Now, I'm not, I don't think that that's necessarily new. 
Paul was obviously talking about it then. But there's a lot of things that we see, a lot of Facebook and social media things that heighten this sense of controversy. But everything can become a controversy. It's a controversy trying to pick where we're going to send our kids to school. It's a controversy trying to pick how we're going to have a how, how people have babies. It's a controversy trying to decide um, your politics, your food choice, your everything. I mean, the list of food choice goes on. We have gluten-free, we have dairy-free, we have vegan, vegetarian. We have, I think the next thing is going to be food-free diet. I think that's, that's going to take off and I think it's going to be big. I have my own personal preference, which is the taco diet. Um, and it's also, some people might call it a bad diet. Um, we have these things, and like we laugh about them, but people get so angry about this stuff. Now, what Paul is not saying is that we as Christians should have no opinion on any of this stuff. That's not what Paul is saying. Our lives are filled with choices. We have to make choices, okay? We're going to make choices. We can have opinions. We can have conversations about those opinions. That's not what Paul is saying. The problem becomes when these choices start to divide us. That's when a choice becomes a controversy. That's when it becomes foolish. When these things, that I'm not saying they don't matter at all, but they don't matter that much, at least not to God, start to divide us, start to push each other away, start to become the only thing we talk about, start to become the only thing we're passionate about, start to become the only thing that gets us heated up and riled up. When that becomes true, these things have moved from choices that we make to controversies that distract us. And Paul is saying, avoid it. Have no place for it. Don't waste your time with it. Guys, this happens within the church too. Um, for 17 years now, I think, I've, I think it's been about 17 years, I've been a worship leader of some sort. So I've led worship either part-time, full-time, all that stuff. So, and for as long as I can remember, uh, in my 17 years of doing this, I, uh, there's never been a time where there wasn't controversy surrounding, surrounding the nature of the music played on a Sunday morning. Um, it's been kind of just a part of what I do is there's always controversy around it and there's always conversations that have to be had around it. It was right around um, kind of both in the 1960s when uh, music was changing and then really it took hold in the 80s and 90s when... Uh, the seeker-sensitive movement started within the church. If you don't know what that is, it's when basically, instead of all churches being kind of high liturgical churches, they decided, what if we put like a lounge singer up on the stage? What if we had the pastor come out and wear shorts and talk to people just kind of commonly? What would happen then? And they started doing this. And what happened in the midst of this is there became a battle regarding worship music. Christianity Today had written an article entitled Worship Wars which is really sad when you take a step back and think about what we're looking at. We're fighting wars about the style of music that we're playing in church. But the worship wars, there's controversy surrounding it. Um, what's really interesting to me um, is that this is not even a new problem because typically it's the fight between hymns, old hymns, and kind of the new stuff that's being written today and new stuff coming out. Like I said, we can have opinions about it. We can have conversations about it. I'm not saying that everything new is good or that everything old is good. I'm not really taking a side here. I'm more just, let's, let's have the conversation about it. Because this is not a new thing. Uh, what's interesting, so Isaac Watts, who is a great hymn writer, um, we know him. Uh, he wrote Joy to the World. He wrote um, 
um, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, alas, and did my Savior bleed, a number of other hymns that we sing now that we would consider classic hymns, these old hymns. This is what the church should be singing. At the time that Isaac Watts was writing, he was this young man. Uh, the church at the time was basically singing the Psalms. They'd been singing the Psalms for a long time. Oftentimes they would sing them in Latin, or if they sang them in English, they'd sing them in English, but in a way that was just very archaic. The melodies were hard to follow. Um, and he had this vision. Isaac Watts had this vision, along with some other people like Charles Wesley and other hymn writers at the time. What if we were to take the Psalms and start writing them in words that people can understand? What if we were to take the Psalms and start writing them in a way that people could relate to? And what if instead of all these archaic melodies, we started using melodies people would know? So they'd oftentimes use bar songs and bar melodies and put these new poems to these bar melodies and start singing them in church. And guys, if you think the worship wars now are bad, it was crazy. People were, like, people were getting kicked out of churches. Uh, his, Isaac Watts' hymns were banned from a number of churches at the time. Guys, these are the hymns that we claim to be the way the church has always done it, that we're clinging to. They were the new things. And I, once again, I'm not saying that to put one over the other. What I'm saying is that this controversy is not new, but it has no place in the church. We need to understand that. It has no place in the church. Now, that does not mean that we can't have our musical preferences. I have my musical preferences. You sadly have to listen to my musical preferences like every single week, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but I have my musical preferences. I, I like to consider my musical preferences good musical preferences. I work with a guy. I won't throw him under the bus, so I won't use his name, but I'll, I'll just say his name is Shmavich Massey, who has <laughs> bad musical taste. And we can talk about it, we can disagree on it, but we work together. Um, like I said, I don't want to throw him under the bus. I don't want to call him out. Um, so we'll just r remain named Shmevich Massey, okay? Guys, it's okay if we have preferences. And I'm sure that as I get older, uh, my preferences that I think are so cool and so good right now, my kids are going to think are super lame and hate them. You know, and then we're going to have to have that conversation. I hope that I can have the humility to walk into a church and not expect it to play music that I like but know that it's going to be okay. Can you imagine, and this is a side note, but can you imagine if all of us had the same musical taste? Just a side note. How boring would music be if we all had the same musical taste? I think the diversity of preference in music is a glimpse into the great creativity and beauty of God. Okay, we need to know that, and we can celebrate that within church. But this is just one example of the way controversies infect a church. This happens with the way we approach kids' ministry, small group ministry, preaching ministry, any ministry, anything that we do that becomes method can eventually become a controversy that divides the church if we let it. And Paul says, avoid it. Have no place for it. This does not belong in the church. That is how harshly he puts it. There's controversies. There's uh, genealogies. He says, don't waste time with foolish genealogies. This is a little harder for us to understand, but at the time, they would oftentimes look at the genealogies that they found in the Bible or kind of outside of the scripture as a means to kind of predict things. They would kind of use it as kind of a way of almost, almost like witchcraft. Like, I don't want to say witchcraft, but like, like it was a weird way of doing it. It was not using it the way the Bible intended it. I love to think of the movie The Little Mermaid when Sebastian is talking to Ariel and he has this fork in his hand and he hands it to Ariel 
And Ariel's like, what is it? And he's like, well, it's a dinglehopper, of course. And she starts combing her hair with the fork. I think that oftentimes what people will do with the Bible is dinglehopper the Bible. They'll take it and they'll look at it and say, okay, no, I don't really know what this is intended for, so I'm going to make it do something else. That's what he's talking about here. What I'll oftentimes see that, uh, and I'll use this example, um, and there's other examples, but I think an easy way for us to see that is the way we talk oftentimes about the end times in the church. The way we talk about, it's called eschatology, the study of end things, the study of final things. Now, don't mishear me. The church should talk about the end times. The church should talk about the future hope that we have in Christ. The church should talk about the fact that there is judgment coming for the wicked. The church should talk about these things. Those are true. This should give us great hope and great urgency. But there's one clear thing that has ever been stated. The only thing clear in the Bible about the end times is that we don't know when it's going to happen. Literally, the only statement that's made with any certainty, with any assuredness, is that we don't know when this stuff is going to happen, yet people waste their lives trying to figure it out. People waste their time. Guys, I went to a school called Dallas Seminary, and um, I love Dallas Seminary. It was a great school. It was a great time. I love my professors. love the people I went there. But every single class, there was always this one kid that would come in and be like, oh, well, look at this. And then he'd pull out his like 17-page chart and just hijack the class. It was a waste of time. That's the stuff we're talking about. Sorry if you have to do that. <laughs> that was not intended to make anybody feel bad about the way they speak or the way they have to fix glasses. Um, uh, but that's what will happen. We'll dingle hopper the Bible. And what it ultimately does is it distracts us from what we're trying to do. It distracts us from the main point. It wastes people's time. Look at dissensions. He says foolish dissensions. And, and this is really easy to understand. This is just when we're just argumentative about everything. Everything's a fight. Everything's a struggle. Everything's just this constant. And it just divides us. It just pits us against each other. It pushes people away. The last is quarrels about the law. It says don't waste your time with foolish quarrels about the law. Now, and I hope that you understand this. Paul cares about theology. This church cares about theology. We believe that it is important. That theology informs the way we understand God, the way we understand people, the way we understand the world. It says at the beginning of Titus that sound doctrine is important. So when he says foolish quarrels about the law, he's not saying don't think about the law, don't talk about the law, and don't study the law. But there are things that we can pick at and fight about that ultimately divide us in ways that the church should never be divided. I remember when I was growing up, um, so I was born with this desire to be right. That was just the way I was born. It's the way I was hardwired. I wanted to be right, and I wanted to make sure everybody else knew that I was right. I was like, that was my childhood. I feel terrible for my parents, because that was their life. I wanted to be right, and I wanted to always be right, and I wanted everybody else to know that I was right. And this is kind of, this was kind of my life. This is something that God has had to work at over and over again to my whole life. And I remember when I was in high school, I was uh, going on a youth camp up, some summer camp up in Flagstaff, I think. It was, and I had just recently learned about uh, uh, Calvinism and understanding TULIP and all of that stuff. And I thought I was really cool because I understood it. And 
I thought I should share that with everybody. So I remember there was this, this girl that I was sitting next to on the bus who didn't quite understand it, had some disagreements with it, and we talked about it. And at first it was like a nice friendly conversation, but then like, like, like a wolf, like a wolf, I struck. I just gnawed at it, gnawed at it, and pushed at it, and pushed at it, until, no joke, and this is really sad, by the end of the bus ride, she was in tears. This poor girl, I made cry over theology. I did that, guys. It's, it's, it's awful. It's terrible that I would make a girl cry over Calvinism. Now, we're a Calvinistic church. We're a Reformed church. We, it's not that we don't even believe that this stuff is important. We do believe it's important, but it should never do that. Do you guys understand that? It should never do that. When a quarrel about the law serves to um, divide people, hurt people, push people away, that's what Paul is talking about. And there's no place for it in the church. There's no place for it. Avoid it at all costs. There is no place for it. Don't waste your time with it. We can have opinions We can make choices. We can have differing opinions. We can have conversations about those things. But the moment it becomes about being right, the moment it becomes about being better, the moment it becomes about winning, we've all lost. And that's what Paul is trying to say. This is his final warning to the church. Because we have to remember the context. He is trying to encourage his people towards good works. He is giving this great call to action. There is urgent need for us to do the good works of God in this community. And he looks at that and then he sees people doing this stuff. And I think with a lot of impatience and a lot of frustration, he says, don't waste your time with it. Don't waste a minute on it. Um, he goes on to, I think, even get a little more personal. Because not only does he say, avoid all of these things, don't waste your time with these things, but he says, don't waste time with foolish and divisive people. Don't waste time with foolish and divisive people. See, Paul knows there are people seeking to divide the church. He knows that. He's been at this a long time by the time he wrote this letter. He knows that this is a common thing that happens, that as people come together, one of the biggest threats to the church is division. And so what he says here in verse 10 through 11 is don't waste your time with them at all. Let me read this. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, He is self-condemned. Let me read that again. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This should seem kind of harsh to us. It's interesting because in other places, Paul is talking about Bear with one another in love. Have patience with one another. Walk alongside people. Work through people with love. He talks about the grace of God, how his abundance of love and his forgiveness never runs out. Jesus was incredibly patient with people. There was no amount 
of forgiveness that he would give that was too much. There was incredible patience. But yet, right here, if we're reading this correctly, we need to see that there's not a whole lot of patience that Paul has with foolish and divisive people. There's not a whole lot of patience that he has. And he knows that they're there. And the way they do it is exactly what we just talked about. Divisive people divide the church, divide people against each other through controversies, through genealogies, through dissensions, through quarrels about the law. They do it through slander, through gossip, through lies, through sin. He knows that it's going to happen. And this is the way they do it. And what he's telling Titus, he's giving him this pastoral advice. He said, don't waste your time with it at all. Not even a single bit. Don't waste your time with it. You warn them once, you warn them twice, and you cut off fellowship. Because what he's trying to say and what he's trying to communicate clearly is that there is no place for, for these kind of people in the community of God. That does not mean that they have lost their salvation. I'm not saying that, and Paul is not saying that here. He's not saying that they're kicked out of God's love or anything like that, but he's saying that there's no place in God's community. They are a poison. They are somebody that will undermine the church's ability to do exactly what God has called them to do and that the church should have no place for them. And guys, that should seem kind of hard to hear. That should seem kind of strong. But that's what he's saying. And he's saying, and he doesn't even stop there. Because he goes on to say that such a person is warped and sinful. The word warped there is kind of, it's basically this something that was made for something that has turned and contorted so much that it's incapable of doing what it was intended to do. Saying this is a person who was intended for good works, who was saved for good works, who was saved to do the good works of God, to seek justice, to love mercy, to do all of these things, and has become so contorted and so perverted by the pettiness of, of all of these things that he is incapable of doing what he was called to do. He is warped. He is sinful. And ultimately, he is self-condemned. Now, I want to, spend, I want to explain this word because uh, this is the only time this word actually happens in the Bible. It's the only time this word is used, this idea of being self-condemned. Um, for, for our kids, look, kids do a lot of stupid stuff. We do a lot of stupid stuff, but kids do a lot of stupid stuff. And so there's a lot of discipline. Parenting, there's just a lot of discipline. And there should be a lot of discipline, okay? That's not a bad thing. You don't have bad kids if you have to discipline your kids. That's just a part of parenting. But there's a lot of discipline. And, and the way we try to frame it all the time with our kids is we see them doing something. So let's say, for example, they're fighting over a toy. So Lauren and I will come to them and say, all right, if you continue to fight about the toy, you both lose the toy. That's going to be the consequence. If you can play together, maybe something good will happen. We'll say, okay, if you do that, we can come take a break and we're going to have a popsicle. It'll be great. We lay out the consequences very clearly. We say, if you continue in this behavior, this is what's going to happen. And then, oftentimes, they continue in that behavior. And what we said happens, would happen, happens. And they're all up in arms. They're mad. They think it's so unfair that we've taken away the toy. And we look at him, guy like, I didn't take away the toy. Lauren didn't take away the toy. You took away the toy. I told you what would happen if you continue in that behavior. You took away the toy. You said, Dad, I want you to take away this toy. And I'll say that to them, and I, I have no doubt that they hate it, okay? <laughs> it probably drives them crazy. 
But that's what, it, that's what self-condemned means. The warning is there. It's been made clear. If that behavior continues, this is the consequence. So the people that suffer the consequences have condemned themselves to it. That's what Paul is saying. Just like the kids, they chose it. Not me, they chose it. The people that continue to cause division within the church have chosen it for themselves. Now, in the book of Titus, there's layers of application. We need to understand this. First off, this is a book written to a person. So first we need to see Paul is telling Titus what to do. Warn them once, warn them twice, then don't deal with them. He's also talking to elders. And there's, there's, I, I think this has been a great book for us to look at the role of elders in the church. What is it that elders do? Well, this is one of the big things that they do. A good elders help protect the church from foolish and divisive people. Okay? That's one of the roles of elders. But the truth is, this is on all of us. This is something that's on all of us. So when we see it, when we hear it, we need to call it. We shouldn't lend our ear to it. And, and, and I know that that's weird. I know that that's uncomfortable. I know that this seems harsh. But we need to remember that this is all in light of how urgent the need is. See, he says, don't waste time with foolishness and divisive arguments. Don't waste time with foolish and divisive people. And that seems like it's, it's mean. It seems like it's not very patient. It's not very loving. It's not very kind of Paul. But we need to remember Paul's values. Because ultimately, all of this comes down to what do we value? If we value the gospel in our lives, being the center of our life, changing everything about us, if we value justice, seeking justice in the world, if we value being merciful, being forgiving, being kind, being compassionate, showing love, extending grace, if we are, if we are passionate about those things, if we have centered those things in our lives, I guarantee you, you will not have a problem with these things. You won't waste your time. The only way we can waste our time with these things is if we don't understand the beauty, the power, and the importance of the gospel and the deep need for the church to have good works. So that's what we need to see in Paul. That's what we need to see in this book. There is an urgency to all of this. And if we value the things of God, we won't waste our time with this stuff. Now, this was a hard passage to preach because I, I was worried that I, I would just be basically like yelling at us the whole time. And I do want us to take very seriously Paul's call. But what I really want us to walk away with is the way he closes this book. He sends some final instructions to different people and then he returns to, I think, his central theme. And we mentioned it before, but let me read it again. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Let me read it again. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So one of the things that I'm really encouraged by as a pastor here and, and as I've just gotten to know this community is that I don't believe this is a community that wastes a whole lot of time. So I, I, I want you guys to be encouraged. We need to take this warning seriously. 
We need to take this deep into our hearts. I hope there's time, like when I'm reading this, and, and this should happen probably every time I preach, but as I was reading this through, I'm realizing, man, I waste a lot of time on stuff that doesn't matter. I, I, I do a lot of this stuff. This is a deeply convicting passage for me. And, and I hope that if it needs to convict you, that it does. Consider this one of the warnings. But o- overall, I want you guys to be encouraged because this is not a church that I really believe wastes a whole lot of time. I think that this is a church that is devoting themselves to the good works of God, that is seeing urgent needs, that is looking around and loving their neighbor, that is caring for them, that is expending their resources to care for the people around them. That's the church that I see. And I want us to finish this not by focusing so much on the warning, but by remembering the call. By remembering the urgency to good works that God has called us to, that God has called his people to. Guys, we are moving. All right, so, so we have been a church now for about five or six years for a time we were Praxis Arcadia, now we're Redemption Arcadia. We're about to move into a building many of you have invested resources into, many of you will invest time into, to give the opportunity to be there for hopefully as long as we're alive. Hopefully this is a church that has a presence for that long and longer. We have an opportunity to be a church that is devoted to the good works of God, to meeting the urgent needs always surrounding us, with a long-term faithful presence in this community. We have an incredible opportunity as a church. And I think that we are poised to do it. But we need to remember the urgent need. There are families not only being torn apart by poverty, but by frivolity. There are families that are just being broken and broken under the weight of the idols of this world. It's striking to me how many times I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll hear them talk about what their life is like. How, often, how much they have to work to support this lifestyle that they have, how much they have to shun their kids or what they're putting their kids through, all the expectations that they seem to have on each other, on their life, on their children, on their friends, on their family. And they just look at them and they look exhausted. They are being crushed by the weight of their idols. Guys, we are moving into neighborhoods. We live in neighborhoods. This church is going into a place that desperately needs to know Jesus. Do you understand that? And they don't need to know him tomorrow. They don't need to see the good works of God played out sometime in the future. They need it now. There is urgency to what God has called us to. The world needs Jesus now. Arcadia needs Jesus now. This city needs Jesus now. Not tomorrow, not some other time, but now. There is an urgent need for good works. So let's not waste our time. Let's not waste our time doing anything but what God has truly called us to as we move in, as we, as we go into this new place, as we live out the gospel within our church, as we live out the gospel within our communities, within our families. Let's not waste any, cent, any, any bit of time doing anything but what God has called us to do. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I, I am so overwhelmed, Lord, that you in your goodness has brought your people 
into your great work. Lord, that we get to experience your joy, Lord, in bringing justice and lifting oppression. Lord, that we, we get to experience your joy in forgiveness. Lord, we get to experience your joy, Lord, in real love, in mended relationships. God, that we can experience your joy in knowing that sins are forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would go and, exp- and share your joy, Lord, with others, with what we say, with how we act, with how we live, with how we spend our time, with how we spend our resources. God, I pray that we would devote ourselves to good works. We would be a church that is devoted to seeing your love, your values, your forgiveness, your mercy and compassion poured out in our communities. Lord, that we would stop wasting time with anything that distracts or undermines our ability to do so. God, I pray that you'd give us a great urgency. Lord, give us great, great resolve in doing this. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.